sermon text for this morning is John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. As we continue in our study through the Gospel of John. Now in this chapter we read about how Jesus healed a man who was blind from birth. Now this story is significant because of the miracle itself. The fact that Jesus was able to miraculously heal a person's sight without surgery and without modern technology, we see that it was a divine miracle and there are numerous witnesses to what Jesus was able to do. But this healing also has particular significance because of its timing. Because Jesus, we know, had just had several conflicts with religious people in Jerusalem who rejected him. They were spiritually blind to who Jesus really was And they were blind to their need for him uh, in order to save them from their sins. We know that Jesus is the light of the world. But they were spiritually blind to that truth. So when Jesus healed this blind man, he was demonstrating that without divine grace, we remain in spiritual darkness. And we're going to talk more about that aspect of this miracle next week as we get deeper into the chapter. But this morning I want us to focus on the opening verses. The opening verses in which we learn an important lesson from the Lord Jesus about God's good and sovereign purposes in our suffering as believers. Now we learn first that the Bible teaches us that life is characterized by suffering. We see this very clearly in verse 1 of our chapter, and we know that this, is, uh, this truth is driven home to us throughout the scriptures. We see in verse 1 that as he, Jesus, passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. Now, we know that having a physical disability like this man today uh, is very difficult, but It was far more difficult to have a disability like this in the ancient world. You know, in our modern world, especially in developed nations, people suffer blindness, and they are not necessarily completely limited or held back in their lives. That's because we do have so many technologies and uh, especially equipment that can help ease some of the difficulties that come with a disability. And we have laws in place that uh, provide for equal access and employment in such situations. But, you know, there was nothing like that in place in the ancient world. Uh, Those who suffered from physical disabilities like this man, they led a very difficult and a very lonely life. And we see here in verse 1, as the Lord Jesus looks upon this man who was, we're told, blind from birth, we see very clearly that the Bible doesn't pull any punches about the nature of our fallen world. In this word, we see that God very clearly teaches us that we live in a world that is under the curse because of sin. And so, as we see in verse 1, we live in a world in which there is pain and suffering and 
disability. We live in a world in which people die and in which there is violence and conflicts, uh, even in the home, between husbands and wives, between parents and children. There is war and abuse and addiction and lust and greed. Life is characterized by suffering. We know as Christians that we also have an adversary, the devil, who actively seeks to bring about ruin and destruction. The Bible acknowledges and very clearly teaches that suffering exists in the world. And the Bible teaches us that suffering is the result of Adam's first sin and the curse of God that came as a result of that. The Apostle Paul explains in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, that sin came into the world through one man, and sin brought death and God's curse upon creation. And so the Bible presents suffering as the normal experience of everyone living between Adam and the second coming of Christ. That this life is characterized by pain and, and suffering and great difficulty. And so we learn in the Bible that suffering is the result of Adam's first sin, and we also learn that suffering takes many forms. This man who was blind from birth, we know, is clearly suffering externally with a physical disability. We know that God's people throughout the ages have suffered in various ways externally, and we know even in the midst of our church how many of us have suffered in various ways. The writer of Hebrews, who wrote to uh, persecuted Christians in the first century, describes how many of God's people have suffered externally in their lives. We read in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 35 through 38, that some were tortured, others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Now what we see is our external forms of suffering that reveal themselves physically in our world. This blind man that Jesus came upon was suffering in this way. But we also know, loved ones, that suffering can also be internal in a person's soul and in a person's heart and mind. And this type of suffering is also very debilitating and very painful. Brian Cosby writes, for most people, Internal sufferings, such as grief, despair, and sorrow, among others, are far more painful than external sufferings, such as sickness, bodily pain, hunger, and the like. Indeed, throughout history, many people have preferred to experience external suffering rather than bear the torments of internal pain. He goes on and says, moreover, External sufferings often bring about internal pain. For example, the death of a loved one, which is an external event, in one's life brings great sorrows, which is internal often and, and reveals itself 
and great sadness and inner turmoil. Or a husband walking out on his wife and family, which is an external event, would most certainly cause deep feelings of rejection and, and loneliness, which manifests itself internally. External afflictions can certainly leave their share of scars, but internal afflictions often leave lasting impressions, wounds, despair, and their own kinds of scars. And we know as Christians that many people can also suffer spiritually because of things like satanic oppression or struggles in faith or a besetting sin. Friends, being aware of these various forms of suffering, when we are aware of them, we can, as a church and as brothers and sisters, better minister to one another. You know, we can be quick, very quick, to help those who are suffering physically, visibly, but we might not be as sensitive to those who are suffering internally and spiritually. So we need to remember that we live in a fallen world in which suffering takes on many forms, forms that are often unseen. So to pray for God's discernment and the sensitivity of the Spirit to minister to one another when we are experiencing all types of sufferings. And Jesus' disciples, as they saw this man who was blind from birth, they understood that, yes, suffering is the result of living in a fallen world. But we see that they were in error when they tried to tie this man's suffering to a particular sin that either he committed or that his parents had committed. Notice verse 2 of our passage. The disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, the idea that the parents' sin can affect their children is found in the New Testament. Richard Phillips explains that in the second commandment, God speaks about visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate the Lord. Now, this happens, we know, in a natural way as uh, sins of anger, of dishonesty, and even substance abuse are passed on from parent to child along with their tragic consequences. And Richard Phillips gives the example of when children are born with drug addictions because of their mother's habits. We know that these, these sins of the parents can and do sometimes affect the children. Nonetheless, loved ones, we should not assume that we or anyone else are doomed by generational judgments from God. Because the Bible very clearly teaches us that everyone who repents and believes is saved. And, and so the disciples, we see, thought that this man's parents must have sinned in some way, or, or perhaps they, they thought even he sinned in some way, uh, in his mother's womb, perhaps. Now, some rabbis believe that infants could willfully sin even before birth. And we see this, for example, in how Jacob and Esau struggled together as twins in Rebekah's womb. So the rabbis pointed to the sinful struggle 
in the womb that would ultimately manifest itself throughout the brothers' relationship in their lives. Well, the disciples were looking to make some kind of clear connection between personal sin and this man's blindness. They wanted to draw a very clear, straight line, a one-to-one connection. So they asked, who sinned, this man or his parents? We see in verse 3 that Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. There are a lot of biblical examples that connect personal sin and personal suffering. We find, for example, in the Old Testament when Achan took some of the devoted things as Israel was attacking Jericho and he hid them in his tent. And when his sin was found out, that Achan uh, died as a result, his family died, um, and even Israel as a nation suffered under God's discipline. And the Apostle Paul explains to the church in Corinth that there was a connection between personal sin and personal suffering when he told them that some of them were partaking of the Lord's Supper unworthily, and as a result, some of them were becoming ill, uh, even dying as a result. So there are numerous examples in the Bible of a connection between personal sin and, and personal suffering of, we might say, you know, reaping what you sow, but Jesus reminds us here of something that we must never forget. And that is that the connection between personal sin and personal suffering is not absolute. It's not as clear as the disciples were making it out to be. That is to say, it is not always the case that personal sin and personal suffering are directly connected. The error that Jesus' disciples made, you know, is very common even today, and it's common even among Christians. We can easily fall into the wrong belief that every instance of suffering is is caused by God's immediate wrath. One commentator explains that we commit this error frequently, saying of some suffering person, we see them thinking, I wonder what he did. Uh, to deserve what he's experiencing at this moment. This was the perspective we know of Job's friends, as they only added to his great suffering. They believed that Job had done something to deserve his sorrows, and their counsel to him was almost as bitter to Job as his sufferings themselves. We know that such a view assumes that God is vigilantly watching so as to pounce on every mistake, every sin that we commit. Friends, this is so wrong. Donald Gray Barnhouse explains, God is not up in heaven trying to hit people. Anyone could testify to the fact that many times he has sinned and has not reaped the fruits of that sin. God has been gracious in a wonderful way. How tender and how patient he is with each of us. Assuming that others somehow deserve their suffering, you know, that turns us into mean-spirited judges. It ultimately 
relieves us of our calling as Christians to weep with those who weep and to mourn with those who mourn. And it often um, excuses ourselves of our own uh, personal suffering. You know, John Calvin insightfully warns that we tend toward a harsher judgment of others' sufferings than our own. Calvin says, if my brother meets with adversity, I instantly acknowledge the judgment of God on him. But if God chastises me with a heavier stroke, I wink at my sins. Calvin says, if we wish to be candid judges in this matter, let us learn to be quick in discerning our own evils rather than those of others. See, what Jesus teaches us here in verse 3 is that our suffering is not meaningless and it's not at the hand of a vindictive God, but our suffering has a purpose. It's not meaningless. We read again in verse 3, Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. See, friends, God ultimately had a purpose for this man's life, and his suffering was a part of that great purpose. Nothing that happens in this world, including the suffering that we experience as God's people, nothing is meaningless. Everything that happens is according to God's wise and mysterious providence. Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 27, gives us a wonderful and comforting definition of God's providence. The question is, what do you understand by the providence of God? The answer is, God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Indeed, all things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. The Catechism summarizes the Bible's teaching, loved ones, that nothing happens to us in this life as a result of karma or, or chance, but God directs all things according to the counsel of his own will. God's purpose will be established, and he will accomplish it according to his good pleasure. See, knowing this gives us reason to live in faith and, and not in fear, and it helps to prepare us, doesn't it, to endure the difficulties that we face in this life. You know, sometimes we, we can clearly see God's reasons for the sufferings that we experience. A wonderful example of this is found in the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. You know that Joseph suffered greatly in his life. And children, you know how much Joseph suffered at the hands of his brothers as he was sold into slavery by them. And then how he was falsely imprisoned and forgotten about for many years. And along with the external suffering that Joseph 
experienced, there was also internal and spiritual suffering as he no doubt anguished over his brother's lack of love and, and the way that they treated him and, and him longing to be home with his father again and with his mother and with his family. And then those moments in which Joseph in, in that dark prison was questioning God's will for his life and, and God's goodness and, and struggling internally with all of the difficult providences that he had experienced. But we know that it was later in his life that Joseph was able to see God's providence in all that he experienced and how God used even the sin of his own brothers to preserve his family during that great famine that came over Egypt. Joseph was part of God's overarching plan to preserve Abraham's family because we know that the promised one, the Messiah, would come from Abraham's line. And so this was God's way of accomplishing his good purposes by using even the difficulties that Joseph experienced to bring about his will. But you see, loved ones, it was only later in his life, toward the end of his life, as we read in Genesis, that Joseph was, as he was reunited with his brothers, able to say that you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people be kept alive as they are today. Joseph saw how God's providence worked very clearly in his life. And, you know, we see the same kind of clarity in our passage this morning. That God used the suffering of this man who had been born blind. He used his suffering to reveal the glory and the power of Christ, who is the light of the world. R.C. Sproul writes that this man had been born blind so many years before, so that on this particular day, God's kingdom could be manifested through his healing. God's purpose here was to demonstrate who Jesus was. And to this day, 2,000 years later, that blind man who is presumably in heaven today, perhaps has been joined by his children and grandchildren, sits with them and talks about how God uses blindness to demonstrate the identity of Christ. He discovered that his tragic condition was by no means senseless. It had a divine purpose that has borne witness to Christ throughout all history. See, friends, in stories like Joseph's and like this blind man's, we can clearly see God's loving and wise purposes in all that these men experienced. But this isn't necessarily the case in our own sufferings, is it? We don't always see with such clarity how God's providence is working out in our lives. And so what we need to do is to use the many examples that we find in Scripture to see that, yes, in fact, for those who love God, all things do work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. To, to see that our suffering is not random or meaningless, but that suffering is a tool used by God to produce wonderful things in and through us that we could never produce or accomplish on our own. 
see this very powerfully in the cross, the cross through which God used the suffering and death of his own son in order to bring about the greatest blessing of all, the eternal redemption of his people. But it's, it's difficult, isn't it? Difficult during those times of intense suffering in our lives to try to understand why God would ordain such a thing. We're in those moments in life, we're in the storms that come and the clouds and it's dark and we don't see a light at the end of the tunnel, as they say. The nights feel long and they feel full of pain. We ask, what might God's purposes be in this dark moment of our lives? Loved ones, it's in those moments, it's in those times that we need to know and believe that God is our Heavenly Father, that he is all-wise and and all-knowing, and that he loves us because of Christ. And so even in the midst of uh, those dark nights of the soul, our, our minds might not be able to fully understand what God is doing and why, but we can trust that God knows better than we do, and that he is all-wise and all-loving. I've included in the sermon outline, you'll notice in the bulletin, eight uh, clear purposes that we find in Scripture. Now, uh, these are adapted from some Puritan writings, uh, such as uh, John Flavel's or Flavel's book. That is, I want to say this is not an exhaustive list, but it's merely here as a, a sample of some of the examples we find in the Bible as we try to understand God's providence in ordaining suffering for his people. As in any suffering or difficult event that arises, we know, loved ones, that God is doing many things, as we saw in the example of Joseph and we see in our text this morning. God is doing a whole host of things, millions of things, far more than we as, as creatures could ever fully comprehend. But, but we can use the examples we find in the Bible to seek some understanding of what he may be accomplishing in our lives through the difficulties that we suffer. Now we're going to move quickly through these eight reasons, but I want to encourage you to perhaps spend time thinking about them today, even looking up the script, scripture references and considering the context uh, by yourself or with your family uh, so that you too might understand the wisdom of God in ordaining suffering for his elect. We see in Scripture that one of the reasons that God ordains suffering for his elect is in order to reveal, deter, and mortify sin, to to put sin to death in us. The Apostle Paul describes, for example, how he suffered a thorn in the flesh. He calls it a messenger of Satan, was there to harass him. Now, we don't know for certain what Paul was referring to. It might have been inner turmoil that he had in his soul. He describes how his heart broke for his fellow Israelites who remained in unbelief and who continued to reject Jesus. He, he felt turmoil as a result of their rejection of Christ. 
the thorn in the flesh could have also been the opponents that Paul often faced in his ministry uh, that retaliated against him physically. It could also have been some physical illness or disability that Paul had experienced or some kind of demonic oppression. Uh, But Paul was aware of why God ordained this thorn in the flesh for him. He says it was to keep him from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that he had received from God. Brian Cosby writes that God uses suffering, such as Paul experienced here, to reveal to us the sin that clings so closely to our hearts. When we suddenly bear an affliction, our pride, impatience, and unbelief will oftentimes reveal themselves, will come to the surface. Suffering breaks open the sinful heart, laying it bare and visible. The suffering itself is not evil, but it shows me the sin still present in my heart. Sometimes my suffering reveals my lack of faith in God's promises. I begin questioning God. How could you let this happen? It's the frequent prayer of, of those who experience suffering. Again, the suffering seeks and finds my sin, says Brian Cosby, so that I might see it, confess it, repent of it, and trust in the gospel of grace. We see in the Bible that God also ordains suffering for his elect. Secondly, in order to produce godliness and spiritual fruit in our lives. Not just to put sin to death in us, but to bring holiness to life in us. This is what we call the lifelong process of sanctification. The Westminster Shorter Catechism defines sanctification as the work of of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die to sin and to live to righteousness. Thirdly, we see in the Bible that God ordains suffering for his elect in order to reveal his character, to reveal his attributes, and and to reveal himself in a more full and deep way to us. We learn about God's love and sustaining power, about his wisdom and his kindness when we undergo trials. We saw in the book of Job, chapter 1, how Job was a godly man. And yet, after he endured great hardships and after he went through the great suffering that he did, he says at the end of the book, I know that you can do anything as he addresses the Lord. And no one can stop you. Job says, I had only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my eyes. I take back everything I said, and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. Job there confessing his deeper understanding of God because of the afflictions that he faced. God also ordained suffering to make us yearn heaven. It is in suffering and sorrow in this life that we are reminded, aren't we, of the joy and the glory that awaits us in the new heaven and the new earth. When we are sick and in pain, we are reminded of things like the resurrection bodies that we will have and the way that we won't experience sickness and pain 
in those bodies in glory. And when we experience conflicts and struggles here on earth, in this fallen world, this fallen world, as we experience conflict and struggles as a result of sin, we are reminded of the unity and the peace that we will experience in glory. And, and this all makes us long for the new heavens and the new earth and for Christ's return. Fifth, God ordains suffering for his people in order to produce a sincere faith without hypocrisy. Suffering often reveals the true believer from the non-believer. Jesus said in the parable of the four soils that as the sower cast the seed on the ground, some of the seed fell on a rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And, and he says immediately it sprang up. But since it had no depth of soil when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Now Jesus explains that this represents those who profess faith but who fall away during times of suffering and persecution. They hear the word and immediately receive it with joy and endure for a little while. But he says, when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. This is why the Apostle Peter speaks about the tested genuineness of your faith. It's a testing that God brings about for our good uh, through suffering. And sixth, God ordains suffering for his people in order also to encourage fellowship with him through the means of grace. Now, for genuine believers, when we suffer, we tend to rely more on God's word, on prayer, and on the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, and on fellowship together as brothers and sisters in Christ. We tend to long to meet together, to be built up, and to be strengthened by one another. God really, I know, drove this home to many of us over the past few months when, during this time of great anxiety and fear, we were prevented from meeting together for corporate worship and for personal fellowship. And we all experienced, didn't we, how going through difficulty causes in us to have a desire to meet together, to worship the Lord, to experience God's means of grace all the more. That came about through trial and through difficulty. And seventh, God ordains suffering to bear witness to the world. And when a Christian faces suffering, the unbelieving world has the opportunity to see the sincerity and the reality of our trust in the Lord. I heard recently the personal testimony of a medical doctor who explained that he was converted while going through medical school when he said that during one of his rotations, one of the ladies that he was caring for, one of his patients who was elderly, he said that though she was experiencing great difficulty and great suffering in her life because of her disability. He said that she often spoke to him about the joy that she had in knowing Christ. This caused him to investigate the truth of God's word, and he was later converted to Christ. And eighth, 
reason we find in Scripture that God ordains suffering for his elect is to cultivate greater communion with Christ, who is the, was the greatest sufferer. You know, we share in Christ's sufferings. We're told in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, uh, not in the sense that we're atoning for sin as he did through his suffering, but in the sense that as we seek to give him glory in our lives, to live for him, we will experience persecution and rejection, and we will suffer like he did. And we can find even then greater appreciation for all that Christ endured for us, that he suffered not just the rejection of man and the painful torture of the cross, but he also suffered under the wrath of God for our sins. See, beloved, God has a plan and a purpose, and it is all for his glory and for our eternal good. And so as the Heidelberg Catechism teaches us, we can be patient when things go against us. We can be thankful when things go well. And for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing will separate us from his love. In fact, all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they can neither move nor be moved. All praise and all glory to him. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, you have commanded us through your word to give thanks in all circumstances, for such is your will for us in Christ. But while we admit how easy it is to rejoice in your gospel and the good news of our salvation, and to rejoice when we see all things working together for our good, we also admit how hard it is to give you praise when we are battered and beaten by the storms of life. Help us, O Lord, to see through our trials and to have a divine perspective on them. Help us to see them as you see them and to trust in you so that we indeed can rejoice and give thanks even as we experience great suffering. We find comfort in knowing that Christ is always with us by his spirit and that this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. All praise, honor, and glory be to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.